Well, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in John chapter 2. And we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll go all the way to verse 11. That's a very famous story, but John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And this is a, what we're going to call today's message is the reveal party. The reveal party. Now, something that has been very popular in our time and culture are what are called gender reveal parties, right? We're expecting parents will invite friends and family over for a very fun and creative gender reveal party. Uh, they'll use pink or blue icing coming out of the cake, pink or blue smoke coming out of a gun, pink or blue balloons coming out of a box, pink or blue t-shirts. We get the idea. How many of you ever been to a gender reveal party? Not many of you, but I've been to one. They're all right. Uh, they're fun. Um, they're not so much fun for everybody. Take a look at this clip real quick. Are you nervous, Simone? Okay, this is a boy or a girl. Big bite, ready? Cheers. Ooh, I told you. I told you. <laughs> Not so fun for everybody, right? Um, but what we can learn from gender reveal parties is, yeah, whenever you're making a big reveal like that, you, you want to have an event, you want to have, you know, a, perhaps a party. I couldn't help when preparing this message, I couldn't, I couldn't help but think about our church. In fact, two years ago, back in the summer of 2017, Pastor Hess, Pastor Steve, led us in a meeting where we needed to come up with really a, a vision statement, something that revealed who we were as a church. For a long time, we were kind of known as not your grandma's Baptist church. That, that's what we were known for. That's a, that's a, we weren't known for who we were. We were known for what we were not. We're not your grandma's Baptist church. So we got together and said, well, who are we as a church? And we came up with this statement. If you've been a while for a while, you've heard it. We are a safe place of healing grace and hope for all generations. And so, yeah, when we came up with that statement, we said, you know what? We need, to, we need to do a big reveal to the, to the church community, to, a, to a, big, a big reveal to the people. And so we did this three-week sermon series called My Southern Hills, and we wrote out new signage and new logos and new T-shirts and new videos and all this stuff. Because when you make a big reveal, you want to go big. It's like go big or go home, right? All right. This story we're about to read, I'll just go ahead and give you the ending of the story. Verse 11, it says that this was the first of the signs that Jesus, in which Jesus revealed his glory. In other words, this was the first sign in which he revealed to the public who he is and what he came to do. This was his big reveal party. Now, if you were on Jesus' staff, let's say Jesus called his staff meeting and said, hey, you know, I need to do a first sign to, to launch out to the public, to reveal who I am. What would you have recommended? I'll tell you what I would have recommended. I would have said, let's start with that feeding of the 5,000 thing. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a lot of people. It's 5,000 men plus women and children. So, like, there's 10,000 people probably or more. Let's do that first 
to do the first sign to reveal who you are and what you came to do. Or let's do a lot of healings. Let's cleanse the lepers. Let's restore sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, liberate people from their demons. Let's do a whole bunch of healing to reveal who you are. Let's make that the first sign. Or if you want to get all modern, let's do some Imagine Dragons. We'll put Imagine Dragons on, lightning and thunder, thunder, feel the thunder, however that song goes. And just shake up the earth, you know, a little bit with some thunder. That's a little dumb. But anyway, you know, I, that, something like that. Or I know Jesus, let's go really big on this first sign. The biggest of all, let's raise somebody from the dead. Either you or Lazarus, let's do the resurrection. You can't get any bigger than that. You want to go big. What Jesus decides to do for his first sign to reveal his glory is to turn water into great wine to keep a party going. Praise God for who he is. <laughs> you cannot make up stories like we're about to read. No one would have suggested to Jesus this ought to be your first sign to reveal it. No one would do this. But Jesus. So the question we're answering today is, what was Jesus revealing about himself at this party? And what does it mean for our lives? John 2, beginning in verse 1. Let's look at it. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother, Mary, was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now we have to understand weddings back in the Jewish culture in the first century. They, are a, they were a lot different than our weddings today, okay? Their weddings lasted three to six days. When we do weddings at this church, and I'm starting to get a lot of weddings under my belt, if I'm doing the wedding, it's lasting 20 minutes. And then I'm seeking out the couple, let's sign it, let's get the marriage license signed, and let's get on with it. We add the reception in, maybe three to four hours. Back then, we're talking three to six days. It was the biggest event, like in the village. It wasn't just the friends and the family of the bride and groom coming, it was the entire village coming. And it was really the sign that this young couple, because they got married at 12, 13, 15, you know, around that area, this was them becoming full adult members of society. It was the biggest event. And of course, weddings back then always meant wedding feast. And what was crucial to a wedding feast, being a feast, what was essential for there to be joy and celebration at the wedding feast was wine. And you had to have enough to last three to six days. Verse 3, some people's worst nightmare. Let's look at it. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Is that a big deal or not a big deal? That's a huge deal. That would have brought embarrassment to the, to the bride and groom. It had been a huge dishonor and shame to the grooms from his family. To run out of wine at this wedding would have been a disaster. Mary says, goes to her son and says, Jesus, the supply is gone. We have run out 
of wine. Has she seen Jesus save weddings before or turn water into wine before? I don't know, but all I know is that she knows enough about the greatness of her son, the power of her son, to take this supply crisis situation, this running out problem, to her son and find the solution in her son. Let me tell you something on a side note. That needs to be you and I in our lives. I talked about this in our Friday night service, but I want to say today, whenever you're running short, whenever you're running out, whenever there's a supply crisis in your life, maybe it's something material like it was at this wedding, but usually it goes way beyond that, right? Sometimes we run out of hope. Sometimes we run out of joy and celebration. Sometimes we love, run out of love and kindness for people. Sometimes we run out of perspective, you know, and things like that. Whenever you're running out of something you know you need for joy and celebration in this life, you take the running out situation of Jesus Christ and you find the solution in him just like Mary did. Run to Jesus Christ in a supply crisis. Don't run from when you run out. You run to when you run out. He wants to supply you with what you need. When the wine was gone, Mary turns to her son Let's see what happens. Let's see how Jesus responds to that. Woman? Do not try that in our time and culture with your mama. Like, here's the one time that I would ever say, do not imitate Jesus here. I'm messing with you a little bit. Woman, it's a cultural thing. Back in that time, probably in that setting, would have, been, would have been more like, this is probably how Jesus said it, my lady. Jesus was always kind and affectionate towards his mom. We know that. John 19, 26. John, who wrote this letter? You can look at John 19. Jesus is on the cross, right? What does he say from the cross? He says, woman, behold your son. This was not Jesus being smart elecky and, you know, disrespectful to his mom. So I just want to make that clear. It just sounds, in our culture, sounds bad. But anyway, woman, why do you involve me? Which means what to me and what to you? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. That's a phrase that's used five to seven times in the book of John. And it's always, always referring to Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus replies or Mary comes to Jesus we've run out of wine there's a running out problem supply crisis Jesus says it's not my time to die yet why that response what 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 would make Jesus say that why would he bring up his death at this wedding you know every time I go to a wedding I can't help but think about my death I got no reply. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But anyway, um, it's not, it wasn't funny. Okay. Um, every time I go to a wedding, though, I, I don't think about my death, but let me tell you what I think about. I think about, I think about my own wedding. Seriously, like every time I go to a wedding, every time I do a wedding, it's like, yeah, it reminds me of my wedding. It reminds me of this happening, that happening, and that, yeah. And I think a lot of couples are like that. When they go to a wedding, They'll look at the wedding, and that just reminds them of their wedding. I think even if you're single, you've never been married before, uh, you go to a wedding, and you start thinking about, well, what's my wedding going to be like? When's it going to happen for me? So weddings tend to think you make, or tend to make you think about weddings. 
Now, what does that have to do with Jesus? I mean, he wasn't thinking about another wedding, was he? I find it so interesting in the scriptures that Jesus often referred to himself as the bridegroom. Did you know that? It's like the most neglected term of Jesus. But he would often refer to himself as the bridegroom. I think about Mark 2, 19. Why, why should the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. John, who wrote this letter, wrote the book of Revelation. I think I, I uh, know that, put it on your outline, the, the reference. Revelation 19, 9. John writes, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus, he's obviously going to have a wedding supper someday. Revelation 21, verse 2, John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully adorned, beautifully dressed for her husband. Who's the husband? Jesus. Who's the bride? We are. So at the end of time, obviously, there is going to be this great gathering of all the people of God with a great celebration, a feast to end all feasts, that's going to celebrate the permanent, intimate, fully and complete union of the bride and the bridegroom. Obviously, that's going to happen, right? Well, let's get back to our story in Cana. Jesus is at this wedding in Cana. They've run out of wine. Mary says they've run out of wine to Jesus. Jesus says, why do you involve me? My hour is not yet come. It's almost like Jesus saying, why do you involve me at this wedding? My heart and mind's on another wedding. And the only way there's going to be at the the only way there's going to be wine at the wedding I'm thinking about is I'm going to have to go to the cross and die. You have to understand about Jesus. He was always, always thinking about the mission of the cross and what it would accomplish. Read the rest of John chapter 2. You'll see in verse 19, Jesus enters the temple and he overthrows the tables at the temple. People are like, what authority are you doing that? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. He was always thinking about the cross. And don't you know in that culture, you know it was happening. People would look at Jesus. They got married at 12, 13, 14, 15 as teenagers, right? Jesus is in his 30s. He's at this wedding. Don't you know people were looking at him going, what's wrong with you? He can read minds and hearts. What's wrong with you? When are you going to get married? And Jesus is like, I'm always thinking about the wedding. I want you to never, ever forget. I'm going to say that at the end too. Never, ever forget Jesus Christ is in the wedding business. More so than anybody in our culture, more so than anybody back in their culture, Jesus Christ is absolutely in the wedding business. His wedding will be the pinnacle of all history. It's not going to be a celebration that lasts three to six days. It's going to be a celebration that lasts for eternity. He was always thinking about the mission of the cross and what it would accomplish, our reconciliation with God, and our future intimate, permanent union, complete union with him at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's the only way the bride is going to fall into the arms of the bridegroom is Jesus has got to go die on the cross. But his time had not yet come yet. Now, let's be real. Mary wasn't thinking that. (laughs) But look at how she responds. Verse 5. Mary said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
such a strange response, you know, uh, uh, Jesus, we've run out of wine. Well, it's not my time to die yet. Okay, just do whatever he tells you. She doesn't say back to Jesus, I need you to explain to me what you mean. I, 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 I got to argue with you, Jesus, here. I need to question what you're saying here. She, she, she could have easily been like, Jesus, why are you always talking over everybody's head? Why do you say things like you say? Don't you know what I've been through for you? I rode on a donkey like over 100 miles to bring you to Bethlehem. I had to give birth to you in hay, put you in a feeding trough, move you off to Egypt because some crazy lunatic ruler named Herod was coming after you. Why can't you just speak plainly to all of us? She doesn't do that. No arguing, no complaining, just submission. Do whatever he tells you. She realizes, yeah, he says some, some things that... Or deep and or big, but just do whatever he tells you. She's learned not to be upset with him. Just do whatever he tells you. Take that and put it in your mind. Those five words, do whatever he tells you. Apply it to every area of your life, your biggest struggle right now, and think, do whatever he tells you. There's going to be a great outcome at this wedding because people are going to do whatever he tells them. And I love it. It says, do whatever he tells you, right? It's not you telling God what to do, not you commanding, God, I command you, or bringing your terms and conditions. It's just do whatever he tells you. Put it in your mind. Memorize those five words for every area of your life. I'm speaking to me just as much as anybody. Verse 6. Let's see whatever he tells them to do, these servants. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, first of all, ceremonial washing. I'm going to try to say washing. I'm from Arkansas. I'm not put an R in there and say washing. Just forgive me on that. What were these stone jars used for well back then jews had rules religions traditions customs right they just had all these rules and traditions about purification about cleansing like you had to make sure your hands were washed before you ate make sure your feet were clean before you entered someone's house make sure you were clean before you entered the presence of god in the temple things like that it, it this there was that's what these jars were used for now, we already know that this is Jesus' big reveal party, right? He purposely does things. Uh, you know, he, he purposely chose these six water jars. Why? Because I think he was revealing to everybody, revealing to us, that he has come to do what those stone water jars can't do, what Jewish religion can't do, what rules and traditions can't do, and that is cleanse your heart before God and put you in right standing before him. Jesus Christ is our ultimate ceremonial washing jar who's come to make us right before God. Verse 7. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. <laughs> we said big reveals. You want to go big or go home. This is 120 to 180 gallons of fabulous wine. I love Jesus. Next verse. <laughs> then he told them, oh my gosh, 
Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. The master of the banquet would be the one that's in charge of the festivities and, you know, the one who makes sure the conditions are just right. This is who gets served when and who served first. And these servants need to be here. That's the master of the banquet. And so they drew some of the wine out from those jars, took it to the master of the banquet. And verse 9, look at this. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. That's a good thing. That had been unthinkable to a Jew to draw wine from a ceremonial washing jar. It would be unthinkable. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside in verse 10. And this is what the master of the banquet said to the bridegroom. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Master of the banquet goes to the bridegroom and says, this is amazing. No one does it this way. Everyone does it opposite of this way. Everyone brings the fabulous wine out first, gets everybody a little buzz, you know, to where they don't care. And then they bring the cheaper wine out and let's let them have the rest of their feel. But you have done the exact opposite. That first wine was good, but this wine is remarkable. You have saved the best till now. And don't you know that Jesus Christ is the best till now? and the best till forevermore. Don't you know that Jesus Christ is the new wine that has come to replace the old wine, the old sacrificial system, and the old temple system? Jesus is revealing he's the best till now. He's the new wine that's come to replace the old. Amen. And just on a side note, I, I like the master of the banquet going to the bridegroom and just giving him all the credit. That's part of our purpose as Christians, is to make much of the bridegroom, to give him all the credit, to make him look good to the world around us. The master of the banquet makes much of the bridegroom. That's what we need to be, be doing as well. Verse 11, this is how the story ends. I've already referred to it. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he what? Revealed. His glory. So the first of the signs, the sign is something that directs you to something. So the first of the signs to direct people that, yes, he is the bridegroom that has come to bring life, joy, and celebration to his bride. He is the bridegroom. He is the ultimate ceremonial washing jar who has come to cleanse our hearts before God. He is the best till now and the best there will ever be. He is the new wine that has come to replace the old. You could not have picked a better first sign than that one. Could not have done it any better. Jesus Christ always knows what he's doing. And I loved how verse 11 ended. It says, and the disciples believed in him. Disciples like Mary we're convinced, yeah, there's power and greatness in Jesus Christ. Yeah, they were convinced there's power and greatness in him. Do whatever he tells you. And whenever you're in a supply crisis, take it to him. He knows what to do with it. Are you convinced, like Mary, like the disciples, that there's power and greatness in the son, Jesus Christ?
I want to give you two applications. I took these from Dr. Tim Keller, famous pastor and speaker, author. I love what he had to say about the story. So I'm going to just take those two applications he used and use them right here. How you can know if you're really convinced that there is power and greatness in the Son, Jesus Christ. If you're convinced that he is who he says he is, then the first application is this. Recognize that all wine, but the wine of Christ is inferior and will run out on you. If you're really convinced that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that there's much power, much greatness in him, then you live this life recognizing that all wine. What is wine in this story? Wine was essential, right, for the wedding feast. It was crucial to have celebration and joy at the wedding feast. What do you believe you have to have? What do you believe is essential for you to have joy and celebration in this life? Is it a career? Is it status? Is it power? Is it someone's approval? Is it romance? You know, is it living for your image and reputation? What are you convinced you have to have in order to have joy and celebration in your life? Because if you live for something else, let me tell you, you will find that it's inferior and it will run out on you and you'll be left in a supply crisis. You recognize that all wine, but the wine of Christ, you take in Jesus Christ, you live for him, you will find that he is superior and he'll never run out on you. He will always satisfy you. He will always fulfill you. Live for him. Drink him, right? Second, if you're really convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, then you're going to live this life sipping the coming joy. Jesus Christ is at this wedding. There is joy and celebration and partying going all around him. Mary comes to him and says, they have no more wine. Jesus says, well, it's not my time to go to the cross. He's at this wedding sipping the sorrow of his death. He's always thinking about the cross. And he did that so you can live this life, live in the brokenness of this world, live in the brokenness of your circumstances, your situations. He did that so you can live this life and you sip the coming joy. You never, ever, ever forget that Jesus Christ is in the wedding business. There is an ultimate wedding coming because there's an ultimate spouse coming. And you got to let the hope of the future and that Jesus Christ is coming back for this wedding feast. you got to let that empower you and to face any situation, any circumstance, that, that when things on this earth grow strangely dim, your circumstances or whatever in your life grow strangely dim, you know that you know that you know that the bridegroom has committed his heart to you. He loves you, and he is with you. He'll never fail you, never forsake you. He loves you and is with you for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in adversity and prosperity, you know, whatever. But here's where the difference is between our weddings and his wedding. Death can't do you part. Death can only gain with Jesus Christ. Death cannot do you part. There's unimaginable joy coming for you and I because there's an ultimate bridegroom coming for you and I. He has a plan for you. He is right now preparing a place for you. Let that stabilize you when the things of this earth grow strangely dim. Let that stabilize you in any situation and circumstance you face and to face it with hope. Don't give up. We don't know how good we have it having Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but it's good. Let's pray.